Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. Here's a C.S. Lewis quote. Uh, He said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you will get the earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. And I think that is well said. Maybe that's why Jesus told us in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6.33, he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then all those other things shall be added unto you uh, as well. Um, You know, before we dive into this tonight, when you look at Revelation as a whole, when you look at the big picture for a minute, you will find that as you get toward the end of the book, it becomes a tale of two cities and two women. Now, what do I mean by that? Two cities, uh, Babylon the Great, New Jerusalem. Two women, uh, Babylon the harlot, the whore, the prostitute, depending on the translation that you use, versus the bride of the Lamb, the New Jerusalem. And so as we look here at the end, in, it's kind of ironic because in chapter 17 of Revelation, the harlot Babylon was introduced. And uh, here in uh, chapter 21, the New Jerusalem, the bride of the Lamb, is introduced. And they're both introduced in a similar way. I just want to point this out uh, before we dive in. For example, just very quickly look in Revelation 17, the first three verses. uh, Just look at the setup, okay? In Revelation 17, verse 1, says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls. So that kind of narrows it down to one of seven angels. Remember there were seven angels with seven bowls of wrath? One of those angels came and spoke with me, come, I will show you the judgment of the notorious prostitute who is seated on many waters. The kings of the earth committed sexual immorality with her, and those who live on the earth became drunk on the wine of her sexual immorality. Then he carried me away in the spirit to a wilderness, and uh, and then he saw what he saw. Now, in a similar way, um, look in chapter 21. Of Revelation, where we'll be tonight. And let's look at verse 9 and 10. You'll see the same pattern, okay? Um, look what he says in Revelation 21 9. Then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, another one of those same angels, okay, came and spoke with me Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And then he carried me away in the spirit, and instead of to the wilderness, it was to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So obviously there is a comparison, a contrast, if you will, going on in chapter 17 and chapter 21 to show you the the ultimate destiny between those who follow God and those who don't. Um, G.K. Bill says this. He says, here, again, we have the hearing and the seeing pattern observed elsewhere in Revelation. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, 
jog your memory a little bit. Uh, I could give you several examples. I'll give you the most notable example that comes to mind. Way back in Revelation chapter 5, when John was told about a lion from the tribe of Judah, and then he looked and saw a lamb. You see that pattern a lot in Revelation where he's told one thing, and then he looks and he sees something, well, a little different, but they go together because Jesus is the lion from the tribe of Judah, but he's also the Lamb of God that takes away our sin. Well, in a similar way here in verse 9, he hears or he's being told that he's going to see the bride. Hey, you're fixing to see the bride. Here she comes. And then in verse 10, he looks and what does he see? A city, the holy city, which interprets what he heard. Okay, so tonight as we see this vision of the new Jerusalem, we're going to discover some things. The first thing we discover is the meaning of the city. So look, if you will, in verse uh, 10, Revelation 21, John says, He then carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The city had a massive high wall with twelve gates. Twelve angels were at the gates, and the names of the twelve tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. The city wall had twelve foundations, and the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. So it appears that you could see the foundations. We're accustomed not to seeing foundations, I suppose, but <clears throat> at any rate... Um, I like what Dennis Johnson says. He says, there's an Old Testament background to what we've just read, and it's found in Ezekiel chapter 40. I don't know about you, but probably my, my personal least read book of the Bible, I'm going on record here, is probably Ezekiel, okay? Um, anyway, Ezekiel 40 is the background, Old Testament-wise, uh, that provides the imagery and the references to this passage. Immediately after the vision uh, where Gog and Magog are defeated in Ezekiel 38 and 39, then in chapter 40, uh, the prophet Ezekiel is brought to a very high mountain, okay, to view the measurement of a new temple. That's significant because here we are at the end of Revelation. He's led by the Holy Spirit to a very high mountain overlooking a city, and the city is also a temple. We'll get to that in a minute. And then it's measured so that you see some common, common themes, common patterns here. Let, let me read for a moment. Uh, if you're not familiar with Ezekiel, Ezekiel is uh, very apocalyptic. Uh, I would almost call it the revelation of the Old Testament. Usually people say that about Daniel, but at least Daniel's got some good stories in it. Uh, Ezekiel, whoo! Uh, when you read Ezekiel, there's 48 chapters. And from chapter 48, 40 to 48, a fourth of the book, it's all about an end-time temple, and it's giving you all these details and all these measurements, and it makes your head go like this, and you're like, I don't get it. But let me read just some portions because I want to connect some dots for you. So just bear with me for a minute. I'm going to read some short verses in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 40, verse 2 and 3, for example, here's how it sets up in Ezekiel. It says, In visions of God, he took me to the land of Israel 
and he set me down on a very high mountain. So Ezekiel, his experience sounds just like John's. And on its southern slope was a structure resembling a city. Well, there you go. They're both on a high mountain. They're both seeing a city. And then he says, he brought me there. And I saw a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring rod in his hand, and he was standing by the city gate. So here is Ezekiel on a high mountain overlooking a city, and here's someone getting ready to measure it. And John sees, in effect, the same thing. Then in Ezekiel 47, okay, sparing you a lot of details, in Ezekiel 47 verse 9, he says, Every kind of living creature that swarms will live wherever the river flows. And there will be a huge number of fish because this water goes there. And since the water will become fresh, there will be life everywhere the river goes. In other words, there's going to be this life-giving river in Ezekiel's vision. And when you think about how the Dead Sea is part of Israel, nothing lives in the Dead Sea. That's why they call it the Dead Sea. But here in this uh, end-time vision that Ezekiel has, there's going to be this life-giving uh, river and wherever it goes, there's just life there. Now that's significant because here in a little bit in the passage we're studying tonight, you're going to find that there's a river of life, okay? So again, we're seeing common elements to what God showed Ezekiel and what God's showing John. And then you got in Ezekiel 47 verse 12, he says, all kinds of trees providing food will grow along both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. Each month they will bear fresh fruit because the water comes from the sanctuary. Now there's the idea of the sanctuary. And their fruit will be used for food and their leaves for medicine. And uh, when you read in Revelation, the tree of life is there and the healing is in its leaves and all that stuff. You, again, you're seeing common, common elements, themes, and patterns. And then one more verse in Ezekiel before we move on. In Ezekiel 48, it says that the name, uh, verse 35, the name of the city from that day on will be, the Lord is there. And if you think about it, the new Jerusalem that's coming down from uh, out of heaven from God, God is going to be with His people. Obviously, the Lord is there. So I think there's a lot of parallels going on between uh, Revelation 21 and Ezekiel 40 through 48. As Bill says, both this vision and that of Ezekiel feature four groups of three gates facing north, east, south, and west. And in both, each gate has one of the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel written on them. Again, another common theme, another common link. In, uh, in Revelation 3.12, I love this. In Revelation uh, 3.12, Christ promised that the one who overcomes, whether a Jewish or a Gentile Christian, would become a pillar in the temple of my God. You remember that? Uh, and, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God, and my new name. Now that was a promise that Christ had made to the church in Philadelphia. He said, the one who conquers, I'll make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he'll never go out again. I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Now, I don't know if you thought about it, but in seed form right there in Revelation 3.12, we now have this connection of a temple and a city together. 
okay, a temple and a city. That was the first hint in the book of Revelation that later in, in chapter 21, which is where we are tonight, that the concepts of city and temple would be collapsed into a single concept of the presence of Christ and God with his people. And as we read tonight about the New Jerusalem, you'll find that it's a city, obviously, but as we read the description, you're going to also find it's a temple, and you'll find out why here in just a minute. So what is, to answer the question, <clears throat> what is the meaning of the city? What's the meaning of the New Jerusalem? I would say, very simply put, it's the fact that God will now dwell with his people, okay? Very simply, he will dwell with his people. Notice again, um, Revelation 21, uh, verse uh, 10. He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with his glory. And her radiance is like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And it talks about the massive wall. It talks about the 12 gates. And uh, then it also says that it had 12 foundations. So, Notice the city is coming down out of heaven from God. God is now coming. Uh, heaven and earth are now going to become one. As opposed to worlds apart, they're now going to become one. Um, the city, the, the New Jerusalem, is a holy city. It's radiant with God's glory. And then <clears throat> look at what God has done. We know, we know what Paul said in Ephesians about... Uh, the, the result of the cross. When Christ died on that cross, he brought God and man together, right? He, he, he made a way for us to be saved. He made a way for God and man to be reconciled in Christ through Christ. And he also, he was able to reconcile those that were near and those that were far. That language targeted the Jew and the Gentile, okay? The religious insider Jew, uh, had a lot of knowledge, but they still needed to be saved, and they find salvation through the name of Christ. And then the religious outsider, all the Gentiles, they still can be brought near by the blood of Christ. And through the cross, it says that he divides, he, he destroys that dividing wall of hostility that existed in the temple where Jews could sit in one spot and Gentiles could go no further. And now he's able to take the two, Jew and Gentile, and make them one in Christ and through Christ. Well, you see the fruit of that in this city because the city has what? Twelve gates with the names of the twelve tribes of Israel's sons. And then you've got the twelve foundations with the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And so the names of the twelve tribes of Israel are inscribed on the gates. The names of the 12 apostles are inscribed on the foundations. And so you see that all of God's people, uh, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, are there, okay? And as one commentator says, he says, this is clear testimony that in eternity, the resurrected redeemed will include both Old Testament saints and New Testament saints on an equal basis. And as Herschel Hobbes says, he says the overriding theme of this description suggests the glory and security of the saints in heaven. Okay, The glory and the security of the saints in heaven. 
Well, that's the meaning. The meaning of the city is that God will now dwell on earth, a new earth, with his people forever. Um, now let's look at the measurements of the city. In verse 15, uh, John continues, The one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out in a square. Another word you might see, depending, in, depending on your trans translation, would be a cube. Okay, Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with the rod at 12,000 stadia, and its length, width, and height are equal. And then he measured its wall, 144 cubics, according to human measurement, which the angel used. Now, all the dimensions of the city symbolize its association with the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. Uh, the number 12 here uh, symbolizes the people of God. I mean, you've got 12,000 stadia, you've got 144 cubics, and 144 is what? 12 times 12? I can do a little bit of math, all right? But uh, you've got all this 12 stuff going on here. And so the city, according to Herschel Hobbes, he says the city is a cube, uh, the length, breadth, and height being 12,000 furlongs or stadia. This would mean a city 1,500 miles wide, approximately, 1,500 miles long, and 1,500 miles high. I can't fathom that, can you? He says its shape as a cube reminds one, watch this, its shape as a cube reminds one of the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple. And I want to jump to an Old Testament verse to show you that. In 1 Kings 6, in 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, here's a description of the uh, Holy of Holies. It's called the inner sanctuary, but it's the Holy of Holies. It says, He prepared the inner sanctuary inside the temple to put the Ark of the Lord's Covenant there. We know that that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, was in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And it says the interior of the sanctuary was 30 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 30 feet high. And then watch this. He overlaid it with pure gold, and he also overlaid the cedar altar. Now, <clears throat> I hope you catch where I'm going, because... Here we have a picture of what the temple looked like. And in the Old Testament temple that God had told Moses, here's, how, here's the blueprint, here's the, here's the dimensions, here's how I want it to look. And then years later, Solomon came in with the best materials that money could buy, and he built it, a permanent structure. Um, notice that the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, was a perfect cube. 30 by 30 by 30. It was a perfect cube. You look here at the measurements of this heavenly city, the New Jerusalem, and even though the numbers are different, guess what? It's a perfect cube, all right? And here in a little bit, you're going to find out that one of the things that we always sing about and talk about in heaven is it's got streets of what? Gold, right? And here in uh, 1 Kings 6, 20, the the Holy of Holies was overlaid with pure gold. Do you see the do you see all the links here? Check, 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 check the boxes. Just 
hang on to that, we're getting there. So let me continue. So Hobbes says, this city is a cube of perfection, the dwelling place of God with his people, as was the cubicle holy of holies. Only here, the dwelling will be real and not symbolic as in the case of the earthly. Because, you know, in the earthly holy of holies, nobody went in. Uh, You couldn't. And the only time anybody could would be on the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest, and only with blood for his own sin. But now, God has brought the new heavenly Jerusalem, the holy city, from heaven, from God, down to earth, and his dwelling is with man. And we will see him face to face. Man, that's good. That's coming too. All tonight in this passage we're looking at. So I'll I'll continue. So one of the commentators says, In earthly Jerusalem, the glory of God was limited to a single tiny cube-shaped room that we would call the Holy of Holies. But in New Jerusalem, the glory of God fills a vast cube-shaped city. Think about that, okay? Dennis Johnson says the city doesn't need a sanctuary structure because God's presence fills the whole city, making it a sanctuary, okay? Now, if John is indicating that the measurements in verses 15, 16, and 17 that we just read, if they include all redeemed humanity, not just Jewish, not just Jewish believers in a restored Jerusalem, then this might provide the key to understanding John's use of details from Ezekiel 40 through 48. Um, <clears throat> the city's measurements are not... Uh, here's what G.K. Bill says. He says, The city's measurements are not physically literal or architectural, nor are they nationalistic symbols of a restored temple in Jerusalem, as appears to be the case in Ezekiel, but rather they symbolize the inclusion of the Gentiles as part of the, as part of the true temple in Jerusalem. Now that is the surprise, I guess you could say. You get here to um, Revelation, and it's funny because you can talk to people about how they interpret Revelation differently and so on and so forth, but regardless of their interpretation, when you get to this point in Revelation at the end, in chapter 21, and you see the heavenly city, the New Jerusalem, it's got the 12 tribes of Israel through the 12 gates mentioned, but it's got the 12 apostles, which is New Testament, on the foundations mentioned. So in, so in effect, at the end, all of God's people are there, whether from the Old Testament or the New. They're all there if they belong to Him. Now, as we continue to look at this vision of the New Jerusalem, we've talked about the meaning of the city. We've talked about the measurements of the city. And now let's look at the materials of the city. Um, verse 18 The building material of its wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, clear as glass. Now, I don't think I've ever seen gold that clear or transparent, have you? Uh, The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. And I hate to disappoint uh, David Norton, but I'm not going to pronounce all those stones, David. (laughs) You've got jasper and sapphire and emeralds and a bunch of other ones I can't mention. But they're numbered. The first one is this. The second one is that. And we go all the way up to number 12. And then in verse 21, it says the 12 gates are 12 pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. Now, my imagination's running wild. I don't know about you, but, you know, pearls aren't that big. 
you know, and here is a huge gate made of one single pearl. That's got to be a massive, massive pearl. And then he says, the main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. Now, as one uh, commentator said, he says, there follows a list of jewels and precious things expressing the overwhelming riches, beauty, and splendor of this wonderful city. It has become in its whole and in every part a reflection of the riches, beauty, and splendor of God. Um, I like to say it this way. My pastor growing up, Brother Conyer Walker, used to say, isn't it amazing that living in this world, we know that there are certain things that are very rare, they're hard to find, they're very valuable, and they cost a lot of money. All of these precious stones that are mentioned, plus precious metals like gold, uh, you, you don't find that laying around every day. Uh, those things are considered valuable in this world. They're hard to find. They're very expensive, and everybody wishes they might, might have some because they're valuable riches. And yet, this is the common, ordinary stuff that the heavenly city is made of. Why? Well, I like what my pastor said growing up. He says, I think God is trying to get our attention to say all these precious things that are rare and valuable and expensive down here on earth, that don't even compare to what's really valuable in heaven. All of that just showcases the one that's worth it all, and that is our fellowship with God. Now you think about that. And so we need to consider that the precious valuables of this world are the common materials of the new Jerusalem, and that contrasts with the infinite worth and value of the glory and the presence of God. Some scholars have pointed out the parallel between these 12 tribes of jewels and the 12 stones worn by the high priest of Israel. You can read about that if you want to in Exodus 28. The high priest, Aaron, Moses' brother, was the original and first uh, high priest. And the high priest had to wear a special garment, and it had 12 stones on his chest that, that each one represented a, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and it was to be near his heart and on his mind at all times. But uh, even though that would be a neat parallel, a neat comparison, because of the difficulty of knowing exactly what jewels are meant, in Exodus 28 and Revelation 21, I think about six, seven, or eight of them match, and then, then the rest of them don't because the words are different and the terms are different. And then you gotta, then you got to go back and go, well, what was that then, and what's this here? And it, it kind of gets a little fuzzy and hairy. It's best to emphasize that these jewels point to the splendor of the city. Um, but let's go back again. Let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 6. And this time I want to go to 1 Kings chapter 6 verse 30. We read a couple verses a while ago about uh, in 1 Kings chapter 6 where it was describing the Holy of Holies and how the dimensions back then were 30 by 30 by 30, a perfect cube. And even though the numbers change here in Revelation, the, the city, the New Jerusalem, is still a perfect cube in length, width, and height. Uh, well, now in 1 Kings 6.30, we're told that the temple floor was overlaid with gold in both the inner and outer sanctuaries. Now, I've never really thought about that. I've seen, and 
I've seen pictures of Old Testament descriptions of stuff, but I never really realized that the inner and outer sanctuary of the temple, the floor was covered in gold. And now, and now we get to a point here to where we realize that the city was pure gold, clear as glass. So this city has streets of gold. There in verse 21, the main street of the city was pure gold. Now, this is not coincidence. What does this mean? It says here, one commentator says, for the city street to be transparent as glass, revealing that it's flawless, shows that every citizen of the heavenly city will have access to far more than the wealthiest human who ever lived. It's also worth noting that in the ancient temple of Israel, the priest walked on gold floors, and now every citizen of the New Jerusalem has the same privilege. Think about that. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And then one more thought about these 12 stones before we move forward. Um, did, did a little digging, and there is a verse in Isaiah. It's Isaiah 54, 11 and 12. I want to read that to you because it could be a, a link or a reference to. In Isaiah 54, verse 11, it says, Poor Jerusalem, storm-tossed and not comforted, I will set your stones in black mortar and lay your foundations in Lapeluzi, and I will make your fortifications out of rubies and your gates out of sparkling stones and your walls out of precious stones. And here's what uh, one Bible scholar says. He says, Isaiah's imagery of precious stones as foundations associated with city walls is the closest biblical idea to John's vision in Revelation 21. It reminds us that John received these visions in order to bring comfort and courage to embattled churches. Remember, Isaiah was talking to um, Israel who was afflicted, storm-tossed, and, and they weren't comforted. Just as Isaiah's prophecy comforted ancient Israel, now scorned and harassed by the world, the church, believers in Christ, can take heart. The church's priceless value and eternal safety are secured by the God who founds and surrounds His city with precious stones. So maybe, just maybe, another reason why we're told that these stones are part of uh, the foundation and stuff is to encourage us when we get discouraged, to comfort us when we get weak, that our God is almighty and all all-knowing and all-powerful, and He is in control, and He's encouraging us. You hadn't seen nothing yet. Well, let's move on. Now we get to the exciting stuff. Um, before we leave this um, tour of the heavenly city and what it looks like and what it's going to be like, I want to point out um, some landmarks before we leave. Here's one important landmark. There is no temple. Now, I've been talking a, a lot about the temple, right? I've been reading verses in the Old Testament there in Ezekiel and there in 1 Kings. And, you know, we, here we are, we see this city, and it, it kind of looks like a temple. It feels like a temple with the links to the Old Testament, uh, you know, images and references. But now in verse 22, Revelation 21, verse 22, John says, I did not see a temple in it. 
And if I stop there, people might go, <gasps> right? But here's what he says. I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. How about that? You can't beat that. He says the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. And they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. <clears throat> in other words, the eternal presence of God in Christ among the redeemed is described in terms of never-ending light. There'll be no more night there. It reminds me of a verse in Isaiah 60. In Isaiah 60, verse 19 and 20, the prophet said, The sun will no longer be your light by day, and the brightness of the moon will not shine on you. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your splendor. Your sun will no longer set, and your moon will not fade, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and the days of your sorrow will be over. Amen. Now, what we see here is part of the curse on the wicked city, uh, Babylon the Great, was that there would never be a lamp there. Okay? Matter of fact, let's go back. I, I said this at the beginning that there's, this is a comparison and contrast between Babylon the Great and the New Jerusalem. In um, Revelation 18, look in verse 23 just quickly. In Revelation 18... Verse 23, when it talks about the fall of Babylon the Great, it says, The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. And yet here in the New Jerusalem, we are told that there's no more sun, there's no more moon, because the glory of God illuminates everything, and the Lamb of God is its lamp, and we walk by the light, and will never ever be any night there that is awesome so part of the curse on the uh prostitute city babylon the great was there would never be a lamp to shine there and in contrast the new jerusalem will be forever full of light going again back to isaiah 60 verse 11 it says your city gates will always be open they will never be shut day or night so that the wealth of the nations may be brought into you with their kings being led into procession. And so when John says the nations will walk by its light, the kings of the earth will bring, bring their glory into this heavenly city, the gates will never close, and they will bring their glory and honor into the city. What does that even mean? Well, it goes back to Isaiah 60 verse 11. That thought has been sown before. And I like what Dennis Johnson says. He says, the nations influx into the city bearing their glory and honor, vividly portrays the reality that this bride of the Lamb does and will include and embrace the elect from all of the world's people. John saw a preview of this in Revelation 7. Remember in, in Revelation 7 verse 9, John said, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and people and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
The Lord knows those who are His, and He'll have some from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. And that preview makes clear that the glory and the honor that are carried into the city are not, in, are not intended for ourselves, but are brought into this sanctuary, as it were, like gifts and sacrifices to be offered to the one on the throne. It's all about worship. The depiction is of nations now bringing everything they possess to God. The picture of riches signifies the absolute wholehearted submission of the nations to the Lord God Almighty. Well, one of the important landmarks we see in this heavenly city, the New Jerusalem, is there is no more temple because the city is the temple. There's no more dividing walls. There's no more curtain between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the structure because the Holy of Holies was a perfect cube. This city is a perfect cube. The floor of the temple was laid with gold. The streets of the city are laid with gold. And in the Holy of Holies, you know, on one day of, a, of the year, the Day of the Atonement, the, whole, the, the, the great high priest could go in by himself, but with blood for his own sins first, then for the people, in order to make sure things were good between them and God. But now we have the great high priest, Jesus Christ, because of his sacrifice, we now can have this personal fellowship with God. And so the second thing that we see as a landmark in this beautiful city is the Lamb's Book of Life. Look there at the last verse in chapter 21, verse 27. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, referring to the city, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. The only people that are going to be there, the only people that are going to be able to experience it are those who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and their name is in the Lamb's book of life. Herschel Hobbes says the most glorious thing about heaven is the inhabitants who live there. And nothing unclean or evil will ever be there. Uh, Michael Kukendall says the last mention of the book of life here in Revelation is found in this verse. It pops up a few times, but this is the last time uh, specifically the Lamb's book of life is mentioned. And it's the roll call of entrance into the New Jerusalem. And it confirms one final time that those who reside eternally with God and the Lamb in the new heaven and the new earth have their names written in the Lamb's book of life because the Lamb of God what? He laid down His life and He shed His blood for our sins so that you and I can be saved. It's nothing that we've done. It's all because of His grace. One more thing, and then we'll wrap it up. Another important landmark. We have no temple. We have the Lamb's Book of Life. And now I put these together. Now we have a river of life and a tree of life. Okay? A river of life and a tree of life. Remember earlier at the beginning of this lesson where I read some verses from Ezekiel where he had a vision of an end-time temple and out of the temple flowed this life-giving river and wherever that river went, there was just living things and on each side of it was these trees. Well, look what happens next. Revelation 22, we're just going to look at the first five verses. Then he, referring to the angel, showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, 
flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for healing the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will worship Him. Watch this. They will see His face. That's why you don't need a temple. And in the temple that was on earth, everybody wanted to get a little closer, didn't they? The Gentiles could only go so far. And then the Jews could go further. And then the priests could go further. And then once a year, the high priest could go closer. But now, all that's changed. Now, this city, the New Jerusalem, that comes down out of heaven from God, is basically a temple. It looks like one. It's a perfect cube. It's got gold floors. And the throne of God is there. And now everybody that's there sees God face to face. Wow. Who needs a temple when you can see Him face to face? Well, anyway, let's keep reading. So, it says they will see His face, verse 4, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now I just want to sing hallelujah, don't you? That's good. So let's wrap this up. Kendall easily says this, John's vision of the New Jerusalem concludes with a few details from the center of the city. You know, if you were to retrace everything we've read tonight, it's like he sees the city. There, there it is. And he kind of goes around it and looks at it. And then he walks in it. And then finally he gets to the middle, like downtown in the center of the city. And at this point, we're in the center, center of the city, downtown, if you will. And we see the throne, and we see the river, and we see the tree of life, and all that's going on. He says, when you look at the details, you see a throne, a river, and a tree. And the nearer he gets to the center of the city, the less like a city it seems, and the more like a garden. Something surpassing the original garden of Eden. Wasn't that true? Everything started out in a garden. And then it goes to a city. And now we have a city that looks like a garden. But that's a tale for another day. Here we have the tree of life. Now, I don't know if you've ever studied the tree of life, but I can tell you real quick, the tree of life is only mentioned ten times in the Bible. You only find it in three books of the Bible. It's brought up in Genesis at the very beginning. You saw it in the garden. Uh, Adam and Eve was banished from the garden after they sinned. And they were kept from eating of the tree of life. Boom. That's what we know about the tree of life. And then here at the end of the Bible, at the end of Revelation, boom, tree of life. There it is again. Wow, after all this time, there it is. And then if you read Proverbs, there's two, three, maybe four times in Proverbs that the tree of life is mentioned. Not sure why in Proverbs, but it is. And so when you look at this, you will find that the one thing man couldn't do 
after the fall was partake of the tree of life. Now, because of Jesus, because of, because of the fact that my name and your name is found in the Lamb's book of life, we now have the right to eat of the tree of life. And so what does that mean? That means the curse of sin that happened all the way back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned against God, the curse is no more. It says it right there in verse 3. And there will no longer be any curse. Again, if you were to read nothing but the first three chapters of Genesis and the last two chapters of Revelation, what I call the bookends of the Bible, you would see paradise lost and par paradise found. Okay, Here, the curse is reversed. And that's why, because the curse is reversed, that's why we can go back and look at what we read last week in Revelation 21 verse 4 where it says that He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. That's why. The reason why that's possible is the curse is now reversed. And now we experience the river of life and we get to eat of the tree of life and we enjoy this intimate, personal, face-to-face -face fellowship with God forever. And if that's not enough, verse 5 says that we don't, there won't be any night, that, that He will give us all the light we need, and on top of all that, they, not He, they will reign forever and ever. We will rule and reign with Him. Wow. No wonder Revelation starts out with saying that you are a kingdom of priests and kings to our God. That's amazing. Well, let's boil all this down. This is great stuff, but I want to leave it here. If you're a child of God, you've got a lot to look forward to. We've got your, 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 your future is as bright as the promises of God, and we've got a lot to look forward to. So I guess the ultimate question I have to ask you and everyone watching tonight is this. Have you come to Jesus Christ to receive eternal life from Him? Do, do you belong to Christ? Is He your Lord and Savior? Because if your name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, then you're missing out. But if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you know He's your Lord and Savior, and you look forward to that day when you're with Him forever, look at what you've got to look forward to. John also said this in his gospel, John 1, 12 and 13. He said, To all who did receive Him, He gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in His name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. Have you been born again? If you're born once, you'll die twice, physically and spiritually. But if you're born twice, physically, and born again spiritually, you'll only die once, physically. Then you'll be raised from the dead, and you'll be with Him forever. You and I have a choice. And tonight it's my hope and my prayer that you'll be able to say, like Paul did, I know whom I have believed in, and I am persuaded that He's able to guard that, that He's prepared for me against that day. Well, let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight. Thank you for this time in your word. Lord, I pray that it would encourage us. 
I pray, Lord, that it would strengthen us. Lord, it's amazing to me when I think of all the uh, promises that you've made and all the promises you've kept and fulfilled. Lord, it amazes me that one of these days <laughs> there'll be no temple because you are the temple. We will be with you and you will be with us and we will see you face to face. And there will be no more sin, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more curse, no more death. We will be with you with life, with light, with liberty. And we will rule and reign with you forever. Lord, I'm speechless. And Lord, I just thank you and praise you because you're an awesome God. Lord, give us a glimpse of that heavenly future. And Lord, may we live our lives today in light of eternity. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact the pastor, please visit phbcsummerset.com.